Become spellweavers, reavers, rogues, and men-at-arms, and answer the call of adventure. Pick up your sword, your axe, your spellbook, your bow, your rulebook, and your dice, and join the forces of good in their eternal fight against vile monsters, conspiring min-maxers, horny bards, and blood-soaked murder hobos. Discover the treasure trove of role-playing games here on Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your RPG treasure trove where we are making old school young again. I am your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and we are doing this as a, uh, a makeup interview. This was supposed to happen uh, last month, and then the computer gremlins got me. Uh, this time we are only joined by Bill Barsh, uh, the founder of Paysetter Games, but that's like saying you're only going to be joined by Paul McCartney, if we're being honest. So, Bill, welcome to Rolling Bones. Well, thank you. That's quite a comparison. I'll take it. Absolutely. Great to be here. Absolutely. Well, Bill, it's great to have you back on, and thank you again for agreeing to do this. Uh, I know last time was not the Acme of professionalism, but this time we will uh, we'll strive to be better. Absolutely. We're, we're, you know, I'm a fan of the show, so it's uh, awesome. exciting to be here. Awesome. And uh, not to bury kind of the, the rest of your accomplishments, but you are the founder of Paysetter Games, and you're also one of the co-hosts of This Old Dungeon, which is one of my favorite shows that I've ever been on. Uh, it's a great show, great time with uh, with Edwin Nagy and uh, Lou Al Lou, and uh, usually a rotating guest bringing up uh, older adventures, older settings, older games, and talking about how you can kind of bring them into uh, the, the modern world of gaming, as it were. Yeah, it's a, it's a great show. We have a lot of fun with it. Uh, we go a little long in the tooth, but uh, <laughs> it, uh, it's a lot of fun. And it's, it's great to, it's a, it's a, it's a really cool idea that Lou had to, uh, to just like, you know, everyone does it anyway, right? Everyone takes a lot of these adventures that maybe they didn't play them back in the day or they did way back then. And you, you want to play them again today. And, you know, some of them hold up better than others, and we just kind of like kind of attack them and say, "Hey, how can we, we uh, this old dungeon? It is what we call call it. So, uh, what can we do to to not necessarily improve it, but just make it work better for our game systems today? Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of fun. Absolutely, absolutely. It was great having you on too. It was a lot of that was a blast. That yeah, that was a really fun episode. We we spent a lot of time talking about uh kind of where edwin and i break on safety tools and gaming and maybe not as much time on dark sun but you know it was fun to talk about all that stuff um yeah and and i think we all had a great conversation and a good time as well we did and i tell you that dark something was really prescient right because it was literally like a week or two later that that kind of the stuff hit the fan and people were talking about uh watsy putting out a dark sun campaign setting and and that's gone. That's just never going to happen. So at Absolutely this point, not. it's just the way, you know, the direction they've moved in. Um, that's just not going to happen. So it's ripe for some third party publisher to come around and, uh, 
and do something with retro clone dark zone but yeah mm-hmm. uh, that was a lot of fun it's a great setting it was it was a lot of fun to talk about it because it's stuff that a lot of people don't know about too it's not i think the most well-known setting but uh, people have heard the name but not as much detail i think as we got into it, it was great mm-hmm. cool so like we do on every episode of rolling bones i've got these questions everyone gets asked when they come on the show so uh, Bill, let's begin at the beginning of your gaming career. How did you first encounter and uh, become interested in role-playing games? Uh, not not with role-playing initially. Um, so we're going to take you into the Wayback Machine to around 1976. And uh, I grew up in a, a suburban neighborhood, tons of people, tons of kids. And we had a p- pretty big group. We kind of discovered board games uh, Um uh, we just, we played originally we played Avalon Hills uh, Outdoor Survival. I, I don't know how we ever got a ha- our hands on a copy. We were probably eleven or twelve years old at the time, and uh, uh, so we got that. And then uh, we picked up. Uh, I found uh, at our ho- local hobby shop, which was a train store. Really wasn't much of a hobby store. They had a uh, Starship Troopers by Avalon Hill, and uh, so we picked that up. So we were kind of playing those kind of games first. And then all of a sudden, this same hobby store, you know, you'd go buy, see if anything new ever showed up. And all of a sudden, Dungeons and Dragons showed up and it was the Holmes box set. And uh, we picked it up and kind of figure out how to play. And uh, which I'm sure we did so many things wrong that we don't remember today uh, initially because we had no idea how to play a role playing game. It wasn't it wasn't a thing. Right. So and there was no guide on exactly how to do it. So we kind of learned and. Um, we were fortunate to go to our, our, I went to high school in 78. So maybe six to nine months after we discovered Holmes in late 77, uh, I went to my first game convention and then that's when you really learn everything. So, uh, I was exposed to a whole lot more of the gaming world, but that was my intro into role-playing games, uh, was, uh, just finding at our local hobby store, basically. Hmm. Absolutely. I, I feel like that's even the way that a lot of people still get into uh, role-playing games. I mean, like, my first encounter with RPGs was also at a hobby shop. I was playing Warhammer 40K, and that's where mm-hmm. I first saw what I think at the time was 3.5, maybe 4th edition, uh, sitting on the shelf. And then I saw some people playing what I believe was 2nd edition AD&D at the shop, and I was just like, what's what's going on over here? Uh, I never sat down to play with that group. It took me a while to come around to D&D, but that was where I first saw uh, role-playing happening, was in the context of a hobby shop. Yeah, it's a great gateway for most people, right? So, And and like I said, back in the day, we didn't have traditional hobby shops like kind of you do today. It was, it was definitely a lot different. They were, a, like I said, it was a train and model store. And yep. they just had this one little spinny cart, which every once in a while would have some some sort of gaming stuff on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like I said, I, I walked into high school and we had a, there was a gaming group in the high school um, that most of us were a part of. And then we went to our, our first convention, uh, which was a, a winter con up in uh, at Oakland University up here in Michigan. And there was like 3000 people at it. And so it had this big dealers hall with 50 or 60 vendors. I mean, TSR was there. You know, uh, all the big companies were there back in the day. Yaquinto uh, uh, or SPI. Avalon Hill. I mean, all the big, the big people were there. It was crazy. So it was, it was, wow, this gaming thing is a lot bigger than we ever could have imagined uh, mm-hmm. back in the day. And then uh, AD&D was launching at the same time. So that was really cool. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
And to answer a couple of the questions in chat, uh, Victor, what we ultimately kind of settled on in that episode of This Old Dungeon that I did was the core concept of Dark Sun is this is a world where it's not only like okay but expected for people to own slaves and that's just how things work that's the like everything revolves around the the trade in other humans and elves and halflings etc etc so that core concept is entirely toxic to kind of the ethos of watsi now so you're right for them to actually do dark sun they would want to cut that part out, and at that point, you don't really have Dark Sun anymore. No, it's, it's based on such a tyrannical environment, right, of, mm-hmm. of oppression and of, you know, servitude and the the evil powers that be, you know, just keeping everyone underfoot, which is, I, I mean, it's abhorrent as slavery is. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it, it's, to me, Dark Sun isn't a game that, in any way, shape, or form, glorifies it. It uses it as a tool to be a hero to overthrow it. But mm-hmm. but you're right, Ryan. I mean, Watsi's just not going to tackle that in any way, shape, or form. Are they ever going to tackle anything like that? It's just uh, they're going to stay away from it. Yep. And then even like some of the racial details around yeah. uh, like moles being a a forced breeding of humans and dwarves. They're not really going to want to mess with that. Uh, even cannibal halflings is probably not something that Hasbro is going to like put their stamp of approval on these days. So yeah, I, yeah. Dark Sun is, is now, uh, I, I guess in a way Dark Sun now kind of belongs to us, the, the gamers yeah. who want to keep playing it. Yeah, it's, yeah, you're right. It, it isn't just a slavery, uh, uh, mechanic of, of Dark Sun. It's also the, the vast racial overtones of the game and how they are conflicted and, and, you know, uh, some of them are oppressed or not oppressed. Yeah, it's just, uh, if you just play it as a game, it's just a game, right? But I, yeah. I think in this world today, it's kind of hard sometimes to segregate that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you're right. It's got, uh, Dark Sun's going to have to become uh, something that lives on through us versus the publisher because they're just never going to touch it ever again. Mm-hmm. And then... Now now we have a bunch of Dark Sun questions here in chat. Um, for for No Class RPG podcast, first of all, thanks for, for stopping by. I'm glad that you guys are, are here again. Um, if Watsi ever let go of that trademark, if they just went, we're going to let that and all associated trademarks lapse, which they wouldn't because then you have to pull Thrycreen out of the monster manual and on and on and on. Um if they let it lapse, I do think a third party would release it, and I honestly think they would be successful with it. It would just be a matter of, like, I don't know, is is Goodman Games going to fully embrace the kind of darkness? And I think they would, and I think they would embrace it uh, with kind of an understanding of, look, we know this is bad, that's the point of Dark Sun, is this is the the circumstance you have to overcome so i think someone would do it and would be very successful in publishing that but again watsi is not going to let that trademark go because there's so much from dark sun they've already incorporated into just D as a whole 
Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I'd be all over it too. I mean, we at Pacer, I know we'd love to get our hands on Dark Sun. It's just not going to be a thing. They're never going to let anything go. And, um, and, you know, ironically, they did, you know, we, we talked about the whole slavery aspect. I mean, they reprinted uh, the Slaver series early on um, in that hardcover. And they even did a zero level, created a zero level, you know, or a, an introductory zero level adventure for a zero um for that hardcover book so they at one point in time watsi was all good with it right yeah. they were all good with it and then you know three or four or five years go down the road and they're not good with it anymore so uh they'll probably never reprint that book i, I would be shocked if they would ever touch anything with the old slaver series ever again mm-hmm. i just don't see them seeing them do that either mm-hmm. so but they also have no problem still uh, making money off of the old books on Drive Through or DM's Guild or wherever it is that that those are found now. But uh, no problem at all, right? <laughs> oh God, that again. That we did almost three hours on that. We could almost do another three hours on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, when it comes to the the games that you've played over the years, and I know this is a difficult question for any gamer because the answer changes. It's like asking what your favorite band is. But if you sure. had to pick a favorite RPG system, be it right now, be it of all time, however you want to qualify that, what would it be? So I'm, I think uh, the last time we did this, this is about where we got to, and and I'm going to say I'm going to just say D and D is is always going to be my favorite probably RPG game of all time. But I'm going to step off the reservation and jump into uh, Champions. Uh, I absolutely love the first two or three editions of Champions. And the later editions are good, too. But I think it's one of the... It's just a brilliant system. It's a great character design system. Uh, you can create any kind of hero or superhero you want. And you can do you know, big, powerful superhero campaign. Or you can start really low, you know, uh, weaker heroes. Uh, I think their combat system is stellar. I really love, we played a lot of champions back in the day. Uh, our group did. So that, um, if I had to pick one out of the, you know, one out of the hat per se, cause it's hard to, to just pick one, honestly. And I like a bunch, but I absolutely do love champions. I think it's just a great system and that whole hero system in general. So, and that's not sliding any, you know, I've got other games I like too. I love, you know, obviously call of Cthulhu and, um, even some Merp is a, a, a brilliant game, which I'd love to play some more someday. But uh, uh, I would think with Champions would be my thing. Gotcha. And uh, Crafty Matt has a, a question in chat here uh, that he kind of answered himself. But when it comes to like mechanics, do you prefer more of a skill based system or more of like a class based system? Class. I'm not a gotcha. huge. That probably doesn't come as a surprise to mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people. Um, you know, I'm I'm an older older gamer, so I know this is a, a younger gamer podcast and most of it, so you get a little different perspective. But skill systems weren't a big thing back in the day. I mean, there were skill based uh, games, RPGs. I mean, Traveler was essentially that's what it was all about. Uh, we had fun playing Traveler, but I, I definitely prefer uh, the other way around, more just class based stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I. Honestly, I haven't found where I land on that. I, I tend more towards class-based, but I also haven't played many skill-based games, so that's that's an interesting one. And and Crafty, when we eventually bring you on this show, uh, we'll, we'll have a, a conversation about that. Yeah, I think it's a great conversation to have, too. Mm-hmm. Because, now, I mean, there's so many games like Al Cthulhu's got a lot of skill-based stuff in it, too, so, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. 
Now, uh, all of us who spend a lot of time playing these games, we tend to gravitate towards particular styles of play, and we run games, we tend to, you know, develop our own unique style when it comes to the kinds of games we run. So if you had to describe your preferred style of game as a GM and as a player, what would that be? Uh, it's actually pretty easy. I'm I'm kind of more along the lines of the uh, the pulp uh, high adventure style game. I really enjoyed that. I'm not I'm into uh, let's say horror stuff too much. I'm definitely not into graphic kind of gaming styles. Um, I don't love heavy heavy role playing games. R O L E playing games. I'm you know to me that's just to me. Uh, the role-playing aspect of RPGs, honestly, is there to me. It kind of is the window dressing, all around the sides. I like the, I like the tactical nature of role-playing games. I like the problem-solving part of role-playing games, mystery solving, um, and the storytelling aspect of it to to you know as that ties together. But I'm kind of more in that, you know, like I said, kind of high adventure, uh, uh, pulpy stuff. But I mean, I love game systems like the old top, the original Top Secret, Gamma World. Stuff like that. I just enjoy those games just because of the, the evocative nature of them. Um, but I'm also kind of, uh, and this might sound a little weird, like if you had to movie rate where I tend to fall, I probably fall in that PG rating kind of game style. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm I'm pretty simple, and I just kind of want to play for you know. For me, it's all about having fun at the table, and however, whatever is fun for anyone is what that is what they should play. But that's what's my uh, I think. That's kind of my target for me when I want when I play and when I GM. That's what you're gonna that's what you're gonna see from me. Uh, our Paysetter project products mostly are gonna follow that that line too. Our, our adventures are kind of that uh, high adventure problem solving's hero hero's journey kind of uh, adventures and products. I mean, that's kind of where we stick, and we pretty much stick with the PG kind of stuff. We don't get very graphic with our stuff at all. You know, I mean, I. The way we look at it, if you know, if a twelve-year-old is at home reading one of our books, I'm not, you know, I'm not worried for a second that one of their parents is going to look at it and see something objectionable in it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's kind of where we come from, and that's kind of just kind of I've always had that mentality in in gaming. Yeah, and that's I I run my games as kind of what I call like a blockbuster R, so like a, a Terminator Two is mm-hmm. what I is what I aim for as far as the the tone of my games. Um, but there does seem to be a lot of people who lean in that direction or even kind of edgier. And it's almost to the point where, you know, there, there is this other market that's not being serviced as much. And that kind of like middle market between little kids who are arguably too young to be playing and, you know, teenagers who are going to kind of move in the more edgy direction. Mm-hmm. Kids between the ages of like 10 and 13 really, I think, would enjoy playing this game, but there's not a lot that's geared towards them. Even Watsy stuff, people will say, is for 12 year olds. It's not really. It's not really for 12 year olds. No, it, yeah, you know, I, I think, again, if I go back to kind of a movie reference, I mean, I'm kind of in that first Star Wars trilogy. Indiana Jones, you know, that's kind of where I, I guess yeah. where I kind of land on stuff. Hmm. So obviously there's some stuff that's, you know, especially like, like Indiana Jones and people's faces are melting and stuff, yeah. you know, that, that can be, I guess you consider a little grief. That's, that's about the ceiling of where I am. Gotcha. So 
you know, and that's that's pretty much where Paysetter is. Uh, yeah. We we stay in that, and that's our lane. And we found that we've got a a, a great customer base or a great um, a lot of people who really enjoy that kind of de- you know that kind of play style. So, and I think as a publisher, it's kind of it's almost incumbent on for you to kind of pick a lane, as my wife likes to say, pick your lane and stay in your lane. <laughs> And be good, you know, be be really good in your lane. Yeah. And that's what we had to do. Because I know if I tried to do stuff that was too edgy, it just wouldn't, I wouldn't be good at it. I just know I wouldn't be. I wouldn't, it's not my thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hate horror movies, for example. I mean, I, if a horror movie comes out, I'm not watching it. It's just not my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, so it's probably a little, little too much inside baseball on me, but, but there it is anyway. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now... Another thing that's common for those of us who put lots of time into this hobby, who make these games, do these shows, we do it because we love the game, and we love it because of the memories that we have associated with it. So if you had to pick a fondest RPG memory, what would that be? Oh, shoot. This is a tough question. And I ha- Actually, last time we did this, I had a good answer. Now I'm going I'm to struggle on this one. Um, shoot. Uh, fondest RPG memory. Um, it's probably going to be a convention thing. I, I would bet. Um, I, you know, one I just I, I was on with with Eric and Bad Mike you know, a couple weeks ago. I think it was, and at, at North Texas, the second North Texas, I ran. Um, I ran a game on Saturday night, and uh, it was uh, Lost Caravan, which is actually we'll probably talk about that later. But uh, we. Uh, we, we played, um, started at like seven o'clock at night and, you know, I expected it to run three or four hours. It was the first game I'd run at a convention in probably 25 years. Um, so I wasn't expected that game went till three o'clock in the morning and we just had an hour <laughs> blast. I mean, uh, everyone did. And, um, there was probably way too much drinking involved in that too, but, um, you know, that was, that was just a lot of fun as, I think it was for me, it was one of the perfect experience of being the dungeon master yet feeling that this was a group effort of, of everyone having fun and not just me having to lead them. I mean, it was, everyone was totally into it. And, uh, and we just had a, we had a great night and, uh, that's, I'll, I'll just pick that one right now off the top of my head. And if I remember a better one later on, I'll, I'll drop it on you. Cause I'm sure there was something else in the back of my head, but. But that was a great experience. And that, I mean, honestly, um, as far as a single RPG experience, um, I've probably had too many that I can remember, so. Okay, gotcha. Now, this last question is one that some people also find difficult. The answer can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be. And I have recently added the caveat that it can't be your company logo. Uh, But, Bill, if you could put anything on a T-shirt, what would it be? Okay, this one, I do remember I had an answer for this. I would put the very first map I ever drew, for, uh, a dungeon map that I ever drew back like in ninth had to be nineteen nineteen seventy seven ish. I don't have it, uh, which is you know sad in a way, right? But, but most of that stuff got tossed out. But if I could have one thing back and put on a t shirt, I would put that map on a t shirt. It was probably horrible. Uh, I'm sure none of the lines were straight, but it was that classic dungeon of a twelve year old drawing uh, what he thought a dungeon should look like. And uh, I think that's what I would put on a T-shirt. So, Gotcha. Yeah, I, I could imagine uh, a first map or even like a first character sheet going on a T-shirt. 
if every gamer had one of those that they could wear as a badge of honor slash uh, shame at, at their early days of gaming, I, I think that would be yeah. something that, that any gamer would, would love. The character sheet would be a great one because I remember mine, uh, I had a cleric and the, I tried to draw the character and I cannot draw for my life. I probably tried to copy something and it was probably god awful. I, uh, I, although that I think I still have, honestly. I, think. Mm-hmm. I don't have much. A bunch of my stuff just got purged at some point, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, And unfortunately, a lot of my early dungeons that I wrote are, are, are gone. But yeah, that would be a character sheet would be a great one. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love that idea. And uh, Crafty Matt, you can't steal Victor's answer before he comes on the show. That's <laughs> there's this thing they've been doing now in chat. The the boneheads have have gotten wild, where they've just decided to talk about how handsome I am, and I don't. Nice. I, I just I even feel weird bringing it up, and and <laughs> now it's going to get worse. But <laughs> anyway, anyway. Uh, one of the things that I really enjoy about Pace Setter, uh, not just the products that you guys make, but you know the the ethos of Pace Setter is that it's a family business. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I love the fact that it's not just you. You know, uh, your son Ben's involved as well. It sounds like kind of your whole family is the Pace Setter family. Uh, so, what kind of experience did you have introducing your your kids and your family? to the world of role-playing games kind of over the years? Sure, that's, that's actually a fun question. So um, I have, uh, for those of you out there, I mean, most people out there know my son, Ben. I mean, they probably, at this point, a lot of people know him better than I do, uh, better than me. So, but uh, he has two sisters. He has an older sister and a younger sister. So uh, the introduction of gaming to the family was, um, I, when they were really little, I grabbed a copy of the uh, Fantasy Forest board game by TSR. And it's just a simple uh, pick cards and you move. There's like a monster picture and a number underneath it. And that's how many spaces you move on the board. And if you fight monsters, you play the cards and stuff like that. And the kids would have when they were little. I mean, when they were little, they were like four, six, and eight playing this. Uh, They're all two years apart. Ben's in the middle. Um, So that was their first impression. Now, my wife on the other side is, uh, I don't want to call her the anti-gamer. She, but she (laughs) is. She, because she's not opposed to anything. She's, a, she's super supportive. Um, I couldn't have done anything I did with Pacer without her support. But in the same same coin, she is she is totally. I don't want to say disinterested because she'll ask, "Hey, how are things going?" Every once in a while. But she, gaming in her, it's not in her world at all. And, and, and like if we sit down and play the game, she's gonna go find something else to go do. So she's <laughs> yeah. gonna go for a run or do something else. It's just. She's never, that's not her thing. But the, uh, and my oldest daughter, um, she kind of, she didn't want to say she grew out of it because she played D&D. We played, uh, we played Miss, I played the Thunder Rift campaign with my kids when they kind of were little, you know, in that late, you know, not teenage years, but, you know, 8, 10, 12 area. And we played D&D. Oddly enough, Den, Ben didn't play very much, but, um, and we didn't play a ton, but we did. So they had some experience playing BX D&D. That would have been their their first first exposure to actually Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, we didn't play a ton because my kids were um, all of my kids played sports and they played usually multiple sports. Mm-hmm. Um, the girls played softball and basketball in the winter, and Ben played football and baseball, and he played some bas- basketball to, uh, mostly as a conditioning thing in the winters. 
Um, and they played at pretty high level. They, they all wound up playing being very good. So that kept them super busy. Um, as anyone who has kids play travel sports knows, um, you're gone all the time. Oh, yeah. It's just busy. So gaming was never a big part of our family life necessarily until um, I think kind of later on. I took them to some to Gen Con a couple of times. Uh, I was uh, running a vendor booth at Gen Con for a couple of years. It's called the OSR booth where I handled not just Pacer stuff, a lot of OSR publications from Frog God and um, Center Series Miniatures back in the day. Uh, God, who else we carried? Um, uh, Expeditious Retreat, um, Lamentations, Raggy stuff mm-hmm. uh, at Gen Con. And I brought my kid, I brought Allie or Anna and Ben along, my youngest and Ben, to help me do it. And their first convention ever was a Gen Con. So I don't know if you think about that, you know, these, mm-hmm. these little 13, 14 year olds walking into this dealer hall, which is the size of a football field. They couldn't yeah. believe it. You know? And uh, uh, that was a lot of fun. That was mm-hmm. great, great experiences. So they got to see some of it as we went along. Um, I was, I was also kind of out of gaming for a long time, just with work and family obligations, uh, when the kids were little too. So, um, but that, that kind of got me back into it. It was, was exposing them to that. And then kind of Ben, as he got into high school, he wanted to, you know, he wanted to do more. He's like, you know, he knew I wrote stuff and I had started pace setter up. I started it in 2008. So he would have been, he was born, I see Ben was born in 98. So he would have been 10. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, three or four years later, when he was a teenager, he decided he wanted to be a little more involved. And I think he wrote his first adventure when he was 16 or 17. He wrote, um, uh, geez, I can't remember the name of it now, but a very, a very large adventure. Hard book. It was really cool. Gotcha. Gotcha. So he has the been... yeah, now Ben is super involved and he's, he does so much for pace setter. It's, it's crazy. I mean, he, he, he took us from me writing, you know, 32 page adventure modules. Now we're writing, now we're doing 200 page color books. Mm-hmm. And that was all Ben's doing for sure. Yeah. Ben is someone who I envy a lot as far as like what he's been able to accomplish. Uh, I am really just kind of beginning my journey and I'm just a couple years older than Ben. Um, and and all the stuff that he's done, like you said, since he since he was a teenager, it it really is something to be proud of. If Ben stopped being involved in games now, he would have done more in gaming than so many people uh, who are even older than him. And I think that's a, a a real accomplishment for him, and something that I'll say to his face when he's on here. It, it is amazing. He is. I'm. I couldn't be prouder. So anyway, I, I forgot the name, but it's Rising of the Furious. This was his first thing he ever wrote and it's about a hundred page 120 page hardcover book i mean it's just a great adventure yeah it was mm-hmm. a, this was the first thing he ever did and you know we have a copy right here on the shelf so i can't but remember the name but he's done a lot since and he's come a long way and uh yeah he's uh makes my head spin what he's got planned for us down the road so it's exciting absolutely absolutely and uh, the the first product of you guys that I actually encountered, uh, funnily enough, because of the name, was Endless Encounters uh, Dungeons. This is the yes. first paysetter product that I got my hands on. Uh, so, so tell us a little bit about how how this book came about and what kind of your your goal was with this particular project. Sure, that, it, and Endless Encounters has a little bit of the history. So, uh, back when paysetter was young, and probably the first few years I was running it. I really enjoyed the old, uh, some people remember these, TSR put out a product called Monster and Treasure Assortment. 
and they did levels one through three was one packet, four through six was a second packet, and seven through nine was a third packet. And I always thought those were great little products. So at some point I said, you know what, I want to do this, but I want to do it like a first level one, a second level, and all the way through level nine. Um, and what those are basically is the the old treasure summons was just a list of 100 monsters. You could roll randomly at, you know, fourth level, get a fourth level monster and roll on the fourth level treasure table, which is 100 treasures. And then it had a few other tables in, in the packet, which would be like treasures hidden in a chest and it might be trapped, that kind of thing. And uh, so I, I kind of did that and we call them DA. I think I did one through seven at some point. And then I got the idea saying, and talking to Ben, I said, you know, I really want to finish these. He said, we need to do a large book because this is just a really cool idea. And I, the one I did was significantly more expanded. I had like monster reactions in there. I had trap tables in there, uh, uh, other um, dungeon room contents. You know, what kind of room it might be. Is this a, a military style room or is this a, a religious style room? And then sub tables for that. And that's kind of where the impetus for, for, endless encounters came from plus we did a sample dungeon so the whole idea is you can just uh just just in, in literally five minutes you can roll up a room like if you're at your table one night and you you know you're the party's just going down this track and you keep hitting empty room and empty room or something like that you can say you know what i want to do something or i want to have one more encounter in here you can really take some dice and you could roll up an encounter in three or four minutes while you're playing that was kind of the idea of endless encounters taking that our, our monster and treasure assortment a step further. And then we included a sample dungeon where we did a whole dungeon rolling randomly. So every every level in Endless Encounters has got um, a sample dungeon in there with, you know, fully keyed encounters. So that was kind of the idea of it. And uh, I think it's, you know, of course, I'm going to say it's a great resource because I think it is a great resource. But we've had a lot of great feedback. It was our biggest Kickstarter ever that we've done. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was super successful. Um, and it's really cool that you got to see that because, it does have some legacy. It wasn't just an idea we had a couple of years ago. It's it's kind of been around and it 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 grew, uh, it grew as a product, you know, off off of one idea, and and we you know it, it elevated. And that's kind of one of the things we we like to do um, at Paysetter. We do like to innovate. It's kind of we don't put it out there publicly too much, but it's an, one of our internal uh, corporate mottos or or. Um, in, I don't know. It, our, our, the things that we talk about is we always want to innovate products. Mm-hmm. We don't just want to put out the same thing that everyone else is putting out. We want to do something a little different um, and try and, and try and stay ahead of the, the field, as it were. And I think Endless Encounters does that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and it's a, it's a utility that I think every dungeon master has wished for at some point. Because I think we've all been in a situation where... Uh, you're, you're sitting there, the players need to do something. They've gone further than you thought they ever would. And, you know, like you said, you, you're just kind of flipping through the monster manual going, all right, what's here? What's here? And you end up just with something random because you stopped on something that looked cool. Whereas this, uh, helps you kind of build these encounters out. Yeah. And, you know, I know what we wanted to do with that book too, which, which was, uh, it was a lot of work, but I think it paid off was it's incredibly detailed, right? I mean, mm-hmm. every monster stat in there is every monster in there is fully statted out. So you don't need to, you know, you can just roll out of that book and everything that you need for that encounter is in endless encounters. You don't need to go to the monster manual necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, depending if you have the five E or BX version, right. the five E version, I think is, doesn't have quite as much uh, stat 
data in it. The BX version has everything in it. It's mm. you would never need to go to your to your books to do anything. Uh, you know, we put a ton of new magic items, put a ton of new monsters in there, which is something we we always do in all of our products, and we we like to do that. And I, thank you for the kind words on that. Um, uh, I really appreciate it, and we love seeing our books out in the wild for sure. Mm. And now, obviously, we, we have to talk about what you guys currently have going on, which is a Kickstarter campaign for uh, Tome of Quests Volume 1. So uh, th- it's advertised as an adventure compendium for 5e and BX. Uh, beyond just that uh, copy there at the bottom of the the uh, advert here on Kickstarter, uh, tell us a little bit about what Tome of Quests is for you guys. Okay, so we just finished talking about kind of Endless Encounters. It was kind of some legacy products. So it's kind of what Toma Quest is. So Toma Quest is we took our um, we took the first five adventures that Paysetter ever published. So um, I think I mentioned we Paysetter started up in 2008. Uh, we published our first adventure in 2009. Uh, it just took a while to get it, get it all going. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the, over the next year, we printed four more uh, adventure modules. Mm-hmm. So uh, Toma Quest takes those first five adventure modules. We've updated them. A lot of them have been in print since 2010, 11, 12 sometime. I mean, you know, we printed one or two printings of it and that was it. Never saw the printing. Um, and I, I'll get into each one in a, I guess in a second after I give, give you that overview. So um, we decided that we want to take our, our legacy adventures like that, put them all in one hardcover, bring them forward for people today who weren't around 10 years ago or however, 14 years ago now. Uh, that could have bought those. And now we have them all in one hardcover. Um, they're updated. So, you know, I actually gave me gave me the opportunity to kind of tweak some of them too, do some things I, I either deleted uh, originally from the, the adventure module because of space considerations, that kind of thing. So now we're, being in a hardcover, I had more room to expand them. So there's some expansion. There's some more new, new magic items. I think a couple new monsters in there. Um, and... And it's in BX D&D, which is basically, you know, basic expert D&D, or you can get Beckmere, uh Old School Essentials, 1,000% compatible with all those. And then we have a 5e version of it also, which most of these have never been in 5e. So um, the the five modules that we have in there are, I, I actually went through our archive and pulled them out, is uh, Thing in the Valley, which is the uh, first module we ever printed. Um then Lost Caravan, I think we talked about, is in there. And this is a this is a big module. It's like a 64-page module. It's it's pretty exhaustive. It's a very large adventure module. And this one is, uh, if you want to take your mid-level D&D party and move them to TSR's Giant Series, that's what the original idea behind that module was. Gotcha. I actually wrote this back in the 80s. So that, that like 1981, I think. Uh, Eruptor's Vengeance is in there. With actually has two two sequel modules. It was a three part series, so all three of them are actually in Toma Quest. And uh, the second one's called Fellhorde. The third one is called the Forgotten Dark. And the Forgotten Dark, um, we only printed a few like beta test copies of it back in the day. We never produced it actually as a module. So Toma Quest is your first chance actually to get get to see that nice that part of Corruptor's Vengeance. Uh, and then Screaming Temple, which is one of our most popular adventures back in the day. And we did do a 5e version of this at some point. It was super popular. So um, so it's got those. And then it's got what a module I don't have here is uh, V1, The Vampire's Curse, which is a murder mystery. 
And uh, so all these are also a little di different. You know, there's dungeon crawls, there's wilderness adventures, um, there's a uh, uh, lost caravan. Is like I said, is a uh, it's kind of a mystery. It's find the princess. The only problem is she disappeared 50 years ago. So you got to find out what happened to her. Yeah. Uh, but she's been gone for a long time. Um, and then uh, the Vampire's Curse is uh, is your classic whodunit. You're the PCs are at this wedding. Um, and the, uh, I don't want I hate to give things away, but the groom gets killed. Okay. In mm -hmm. um, the, the day after celebration, whatever, in this, in this keep. And there's a blizzard, so no one can leave. You know, it's got some great mystery tropes. Um, and there's a bunch of guests that are still there. So you have all kinds of suspects and the PC has got to figure out who the killer is, mm -hmm. uh, it's a lower level adventure by necessity, because high level adventures are problematic with murder mysteries because yeah. spell use is a problem. I mean, you could just cast a spell. Oh, I know who did it. Um, so it's, it's a lower level adventure, uh, but it's, it's pretty cool. It's, it's got time elements to it. It's as a, Game Master, Vampire's Curse is going to be one of the hardest adventures you'll ever run. Um, it's uh, it's extremely difficult to run because you have a lot of NPCs to deal with, and you have a timetable. Because if the PCs, the, the PCs are doing the, are doing their thing, but on the other hand, the villain and villains are doing their thing. So if you know, as the PCs move through the adventure, things are still happening. It's just not waiting for them to walk into every room and see what happens next. It's uh, so it's a little complex that way. And as as the adventure moves on, more people wind up getting killed um, until the PCs eventually discover who the murderer is. It's a really fun adventure. It's complex as it is. It's challenging as hell. Mm -hmm. So that's Toma Quest in a nutshell. Gotcha. It's a complex book. Yep. Mm -hmm. And and something kind of you know relevant to what you were mentioning there about uh you know it being difficult to run the adventure and and victor uh spoke in 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 chat here about how difficult adventures are to write this is something i've been kind of struggling with recently uh putting together not just my adventures for north texas this year but also um trying to get something to publish Every GM, I think at some point, has the thought, I could write an adventure because I'm running an adventure. I'm making an adventure for my players. But there's a lot that we as GMs rely on that we know that the players shouldn't know or don't need to know. But if you're writing an adventure, you have to put it in the book and you have to write it out and you have to you know, have that information there for someone else who does not have direct access to your brain. So... How difficult has that process been to to learn and perfect in your career, uh, just kind of as you've gone through it? So it, the one thing I think you have to, the first thing you have to um, understand about adventure writing is that you have to take yourself out of that DM mode, mm -hmm. which is difficult, I think, for most of most people to do. Um, and, and you have to put yourself into writer mode first. I mean, there, this is this this could be a really long answer. Yeah. Um, so I, I've been doing this for a very long time, and I I when I first started playing D, I imprinted very early on early TSR modules because I didn't we didn't like I said earlier I, we didn't know what we were doing. So when I first got those first couple of D and D modules in hand, I thought that's how you had to write them. That's how you had to write adventures. Mm -hmm. My my understanding was, oh, this is what an adventure looks like. That's how I started writing 
all my adventures. So I wrote player descriptions out. I did. I even wrote notes to myself like adventure modules do. I kind of mimicked exactly what TSR was doing with their adventure modules back in the day. So for me, it was something I imprinted on very early and I developed those, um, I guess that skill to be able to do that. Um, I soon, I actually worked for Task Force Games. This is, I don't want to get too off track, but I did a lot of work with Starfleet Battles. And I wrote a lot of uh, scenarios for Starfleet Battles, mm-hmm. which is very technical, uh, a very technical game, but you still have to have some creative aspects to it. Um, and that that training, I think, also helped me. So you have to get out of that DM mindset, and you got to get into a little bit more of a technical mindset of, of knowing how you want to produce this and present it to someone to be able to run because they're not going to be able to ask you any questions. Right. You know, everything they have is going to have to be in that book. Now, the problem with that is, is I've seen a lot of, I've, I buy a lot of stuff from a lot of people because I always like to see what's out there. And, you know, one of the, the biggest problem there's people go two ways with this. They don't put anywhere near enough stuff in there, which the, the whole purpose of an adventure module, something, something like this is to give it to a DM he can read it and he can run it with as little work as possible. I mean, this this thing is designed to make the life of a DM easier, not harder. Right. So if you don't give him enough information, you just made his life a lot harder. He's not likely to ever use it or probably buy anything from you ever again. Uh, and the same goes on. Honestly, the same goes the other way around. If, you know, you pick up some book, it's 300 pages long and you start reading through this thing and it's so verbose that you feel like you're not getting anywhere. Um, it takes forever to, un, you know, to get to the point, I guess. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a problem too. So you have to put your technical hat on and say, okay, I'm going to design this like an adventure module. Your idea will, will, because it's your idea of what, whatever the idea is of the module, that's all going to get in there. Mm-hmm. And so don't be so caught up in, I think uh, if I can give anyone advice, don't get so caught up in trying to be over creative with something get your core down, get, get, get your outline written. Um, you have to tackle it more as a technical book than you do as a novel. And that's, Mm. again, we all struggle. I do the same thing. I get writing sometimes. And the next thing you know, I'm, I'm looking at 5,000 words saying, you know, I could have done that in a thousand. And I, I went on and on and I brought all kinds of detail and history and all this other crap that, it's just not going to be useful. So you, you got to pare it down. So that's something I think that's difficult for a lot of aspiring module writers to do. But you should do it no matter what, because your first one is not likely going to be your best one. I hate right. to say that. I, we all think it is. I think of the value is one of the first ones we ever did. And I, to me, it's still one of my sentimental favorites of all time. People love this thing. We s- still sell the crap out of it. Um, but do I think it's, are my best ever? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. And, and like I said, I had a lot of experience before I ever put it out. I've done a lot of work in the industry. Um, but that said, I remember writing thing in the Valley and it was definitely done more on a technical level of balancing encounters. You know, how much do I think the players can get through in a day before they have to rest? I mean, you got these different dynamics involved with, you know, uh, old school D&D than you do with modern D&D. So you have to kind of balance encounters and how far can they get? Is there logical breakpoints? 
Hmm. All those all those kinds of things are important, and they're important to think about when you're writing an adventure. And I hope I answered that question the right way. I'm not sure if yeah, I did. Definitely. Yeah, it looks like looks like there's a lot of agreement here in chat that it's at least from like running things perspective, it's better to have something that's more technical so that the flow of it makes sense rather than here's my, here's excerpts of my fantasy novel that I put in while you're trying to actually run this thing for your friends. Because I got, I got news for people, <laughs> no matter what kind of story is going to be in your adventure module. And there's, there's gotta be a story. You have to, yeah. I, I write everything and everything Pacesetter produces as far as adventure modules are, we don't design them based on on a, a static thing of the, the characters going from A to B to C to D to E. Mm-hmm. We really try not to do that because we always think there's, while the players are doing X, the villains are doing Z. So, or are these other NPCs are doing you know, a there's always there should be something going on in the adventure all the time. So make sure your story gets in there, and it's probably going to be more than one story. and And don't hinge it on what you think the players are going to do or not going to do, because every gaming group is totally different, and they're going to handle your adventure in ways that you never dreamed of. I I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten where you know people have sent in saying, "Hey, we played this module; it was great, and here's what we did." And I look at it and go, "Holy shit! I never thought of that." And <laughs> Um, it's, that's a lot of fun. So as technical as I said, it can be, I'm also going to say, you got to make sure it's flexibility in there because don't try to, uh, to totally railroad track your adventure. It's an adventure module, by the way, people, they're going to be railroady. I, that's one of my, I've gotten all kinds of discussions with people about that is, you know, I, well, I don't like adventure modules because they're railroady. They have to be, I I can't give you a sandbox book. It'd be 10,000 pages long. Right. We have to we're trying to tell a story or give you a, a, a flow chart of a story with some fluff around it. it, it it's going to have to be at a certain point. The players are going to migrate from the start to the finish and there's going to be a couple of midsections. So um, in, in those ways, it is a lot like a story, but don't write it like a story. Right. I guess is what I'm saying. You know, put the elements in there, but don't expect it to run that way because it probably won't. Mm hmm. Absolutely. That makes sense. And I have to echo uh, Crafty Matt's sentiments here. Uh, when I write adventures, just like for my, my players in my home games, it definitely looks like the Unabomber Manifesto. Uh, <laughs> that, yeah. I, I think are like that, right? I mean, uh, a lot of the, these early adventures, uh, for example, a lot of these are written a long time ago. Uh, Thing in the Valley I wrote in the early 80s i actually sold it to tsr mm-hmm. they never published it it was written for bx they bought it and they put it in the filing cabinet and never saw the light of day uh but i got paid for it which was really cool yeah uh, uh the lost caravan i wrote this back in the late 70s early 80s i ran it at wintercon 82 it was a tournament module or a tournament adventure mm-hmm. uh in 1982 so a lot of my stuff i wrote for my home campaign these were home campaign adventures but again, I was kind of imprinted on writing my adventures like TSI wrote their modules. So that's just, I, I know I way overdid it. So I am with you with the Unibom- Unibomber Manifesto. I'm go- I, my home stuff is always overwritten. There's yep. way too much. Hmm. Absolutely. Now, 
this might be a bit of a hard segue here, but getting back to uh, Tome of Quests, just yeah. so we can kind of leave people with with that in in their minds as we're uh, coming to the end of our time here. Uh, there are a couple different levels here. Uh, as we mentioned, this is something that you can get in 5e or in BX, depending on uh, what games you run. I have traditionally bought in 5e, but uh, I'm kind of leaving 5e behind, so I think this will be the first book that I buy uh, to be BX compatible. So Great. That's exciting. Um, the, you know, they're very similar. I mean, we, we, have, a, we have a professional guy that does our 5e conversions for us i mean mm-hmm. ben's per, I, I can do i can do it i'm not going to be great at it ben can do it he's a lot better than i am but we actually have someone uh that we send it to who who is an expert at 5e and we love our 5e products but you know for me i love my my original you know we call it bxdnd but mm-hmm. and it is you can play it seamlessly with any like i said any of the bx clones but you could run this in AD&D without virtually any change, just a couple monster stat adjustments would be the only thing you'd ever need to do to it for mm-hmm. first edition, for example. Um, but the books are really similar. I think the big difference in this campaign is that um, there is a difference. There's in the BX book, you're going to get an illusionist character class, um, which we added into the BX version, which is not going to be in the 5e version, but the 5e version um, we I know I think I think it's as a stretch goal, but I think we're going to wind up just throwing it in there anyway. Um, the five E version is going to get a whole segment on energy drain and actually level draining characters, which I don't think exists in five E at all. So um, that's going to come as a shock to people. I mean, it's obviously an optional thing, mm-hmm. but uh, it's something we've talked about doing for a long time, and uh, so that's going to wind up in the five E version. So you're going to get, like I said, we do like to do something innovative every time with our products. So, uh, but we're also keeping it pretty simple. I mean, the the great thing about Tomo Quest is it's all it's basically done. I mean, the the BX version's already gone to the editor, and I think it's just going over to layout. So, and this is I mean, the Kickstarter still got a few days to go, and um, that book, the PDF of that book, will probably go out. You know, probably three four weeks, maybe. I don't want to commit to it because I don't know. I know we're still waiting on some art and maps. That hmm. that I know a lot of art and there's a lot a lot of maps in here and diagrams so um we got keelan working overtime on all that nice uh, but uh the 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 nice part the manuscripts are completely done which is is really nice mm-hmm. but uh yeah so we wanted to put something new in, in there uh like i said for bx there was never an illusionist class so we put that in you know obviously it could work for osc we have a lot of osc fans out there it's a great game mm-hmm. uh so you get illusionist for osc and bx and for 5e you're gonna get level draining Awesome. And if uh, if Keelan's working on it, then the, the maps and diagrams will be awesome. So they are, yeah, yeah. But he is uh, he's amazing. I mean, just absolutely amazing. And, the you know, the stuff I give him is my hand drawn stuff. And when he does with it, it's just genius. So mm-hmm. I give him all the credit. Absolutely. His work is amazing. And uh, yeah. the other the other cool thing that's been added here and and this is something that a lot of kickstarters have been doing recently but for those of you who are 3d printing enthusiasts uh there is an stl miniature pack available with some of the kind of major monsters that you'll run into in in these adventures so uh that's that's a cool addition for those of you who 
uh, have the tools to, to print those out. Yeah, that's a first for us. We, we, we actually do own a miniatures company, which is a totally different thing, but we've never done STL stuff. So this was something that uh, that Ben came up with. It was, I think it was a great idea. So every, we have, I think, six STL files for 15 bucks. I mean, it's a great deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, there's five adventure modules here, but there's six STL files. But each module has the, the, the key big bad or the key villain in an STL file. Um, so that's that's where they come from. So that's, I think that's kind of cool. So... Um, and I always forget the fact that we actually have those in there. I get so caught up in the book part of it because that's my world. Um, but yeah, you get the villain from each, each of the major modules has a villain or a, a prominent, uh, opponent, uh, as a miniature. And then there's an extra one. I think the screaming temple wound up having two. I think the necromancer and there's a giant, uh, flying bat creature, uh, that the necromancer actually flies on, uh, as STL files. Nice. Um, well, one more thing I will want to say about it. If, if you're interested in Pacesetter history, there's going to be a chapter at the end of Toma Quest where you're going to we're going to put uh, you're going to get a full size cover. Original cover is going to be in the back of the book, um, so you can see what they looked like originally. And I'm gonna I've I've written I haven't finished all of them yet, but um, kind of a history of each module, like kind of like my designer notes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here's where it came from and here's what I was thinking when I wrote it and that kind of stuff. And like a brief history of the module, because it is, like I said, Toma quest is kind of a, an anthology of our first five modules. Um, and we will have, there will be Toma quests two, three, four, and five. So every 15 months or so, we're going to put another Toma quest and mm-hmm. we're going to grab the next five modules in our, or next year, the basically 12 month, um, printing, uh, envelope of whatever we printed that year. So next next one will be 2010. Uh, I think we did five or six modules in 2010. And for those of you who don't know, we've done probably around, we're close to having 80 to 90 individual titles out there. Nice. So we do have a large catalog um, to choose from. Uh, we've been doing this for a long time and uh, we've got a lot to do. So we're excited to bring all those forward in Toma Quest. So it'll be something we put out every Every 12 to 15 months, I think we'll do a Tome Quest um, and give people the opportunity to catch up on some of these legacy adventures that we've done. Hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one other thing that I wanted to talk with you about as we kind of reach the end of our time here, uh, obviously, uh, you know, we're we're both big into uh, North Texas and uh, you recently posted about your uh, your plans coming up for uh, for next year's North Texas. Uh, what do you generally do uh, for, for your big Saturday night game, games at North Texas, and what ideas are you uh, playing around with uh, for uh, for this coming year, 2023? So we're going to go way out of the envelope. I normally run an AD&D or, or BXD&D adventure on Saturday night. I've been doing it since uh, the second North Texas convention, so we're on coming up on 15, I think, this year, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've been doing it for a long time. Uh, but this year I'm gonna I'm gonna break the mold. The, the uh, little bit of history here is um, NTX was based on old RPGs. That was Doug Ray, who is the founder of NTX, who passed away last year. Mm-hmm. Um, his his thing was he's gonna have a convention and it was gonna be old school RPG games. Yeah. And but he has Doug had a lot of what we call Dougisms, a lot of quirks and rules. If you were if you if you've come to every single NTX convention since the first one. 
and you, and you have been to every single one, you could actually run anything you wanted. That's one of the perks he kind of gave people who did that. I happen to fall in that category. So I threatened him for years that I was going to run Starfleet. <laughs> and that just drove him crazy because he's like, it's a war game and all that. And, and we joked and had so much fun with it. And I never wound up doing it. Well, this year, I think I'm going to do it on Saturday night. So uh, instead of running d and I'm going to I'm going to turn I, I'm going to get to step out from behind the DM screen for uh, to put it out there. It, it's not that I'm not running D&D at the convention. I also run the AD&D tournament at NTX. So I run four, at least four tournament rounds of AD&D uh, through from Thursday, from well, actually Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, because Saturday we announced the winner. So. Um, so I'm running plenty of AD and D during the rest of the con. And I usually Saturday night, it's just, this is going to be, give me the chance to kind of sit there and just, we're going to put a mega hex out. We're going to bring miniatures and we're going to run probably a, just a giant, uh, uh, we'll call it barroom brawl or everyone gets a frigate and you just go at it. And it's going to be, I think it's going to be fun. So yeah, I did, I did post it on the NTX page. And I took a poll. I said, Hey, should we do this? Should we not do it? Because I, I got some people who I hate to do this to them. They've actually played, I think, almost every one of my Saturday night games mm-hmm. who probably have no interest in Starfleet Battles. <laughs> so, but uh, um, we'll figure that out. But I think that's what we're going to do. So thanks for bringing it up. I'm kind of excited that I have a big history of Starfleet Battles. Like I said, I worked for Task Force Games. I, I wrote a lot of Starfleet Battle scenarios um, mm-hmm. back in the day. I published, that was my, that was my, uh, publishing gaming background was was that not RPGs. So mm-hmm. uh, RPGs was was I always loved them, but I, that's not where I did a little bit of work in the gaming industry. That's where my work came from. Mm-hmm. So if you had to pick a Starfleet ship uh, to to go into battle with, uh, what would be your personal choice? A Klingon D seven. And for those who have no <laughs> idea what that is, that's basically the Klingon heavy cruiser. Uh, it's it's just a, a classic machine from. OG start Starfleet battles. Uh, and if you can picture it in your head, it's none of those crazy things. The ones that uh, cloak, that's, that's actually not a thing in Starfleet battles. Only Romulan ships can cloak. Klingons do not cloak. Uh, Klingons look like if you remember the first Star Trek movie they did, mm-hmm. that, I mean, it was horrible, right? With V'ger and all that. Do you remember the Klingon ships in that one or yeah. the Klingon ship in the original series? That's what a D seven looks like. Nice. Uh, and that's what most Klingon ships look like, uh, variations of that ship. So the the whole Paramount did this whole weird thing with uh, with mixing Romulan and Klingon design with that Warbird, War Eagle, whatever thing they call it in the horror hmm. movies. That's that's not Starfleet Battles. And for all you falling asleep right now, as I'm talking about Starfleet Battles, um, the, the one thing I want you to know is I'm not a Trekkie and 99% of people who play Starfleet battles are not Trekkies. Yeah. They're just, it's a, it's a tactical war game and, uh, it just happens to use that IP as its, its basis, but it's not, it's not Star Trek really at all. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and, and, and the cool thing about Starfleet battles, it's the, I think it's the longest imprint war game in, uh, in existence. There's no other game has been in print uh, tactical war game as long as Starfleet Battles. It was originally printed in 78. Nice. So there it is. Way too much information. Absolutely. And and to give people a preview of, and, and I know this is almost a year away at this point, but this is something I'm thinking about right now. 
Uh, I will be running three separate adventures uh, at North Texas myself. Uh, I'm probably going to do them in Dungeon Crawl Classics. There's a chance I might use OSE, though, still kind of deciding where Nighthaven is going to land as far as uh, rule system. But there there will be three adventures. Uh, one, I'll say, is going to be a sewer mission. One is going to involve breaking into and out of a prison, and the other one is mass combat. Oh, that's going to be awesome. Hey, hey, run one of them Saturday night, and I'll make sure all my people go over and play your game. Because <laughs> we're going to be looking yeah. for some D&D on Saturday night. I, I'll that. definitely... I, I'm trying to get kind of a variety so that I can play in a few games myself and also have a time slot that's desirable for people so that you know they can want to come to my game and not feel like it's too early or too late but i i should put something on saturday night i, I think that's a good slot for for a lot of people it's actually a really good slot i mean like i said i've been doing it forever and i scaled it back because we used to like i said we we used to play into the wee hours almost every single time but then mike started doing his satan's midnight auction <laughs> thing every night so i started running starting mine at, i think i I think I normally still start around seven o'clock and we just go to like, you know, 1130, that kind of thing. And um, so people could get to the the midnight auction, which is a riot, absolute riot. <laughs> uh, it gives people a chance to go get dinner and then, you know, jump in the game or, you know, sometimes we can bring pizzas in. But Saturday night's a great slot. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's the last hurrah for most people to, yeah. to game for the weekend. It, you can play Sunday, but. Sunday is a little bit different sometimes. So, mm-hmm. and if you guys have never been to NTX, you need to go. I'm gonna say that right now. And I know, I know, was Eddie in in the chat? I can't see the chat up from my. I think Eddie was in the chat. So yeah, so long time. I'm actually going a long time this year. It'll be my first time ever going. So I'm really excited about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's one that I wish I could make, but it's just that much too close to Thanksgiving for me to to make a trip out there. So yeah. Hudson go. I've got a crazy November actually. So I've got um I've got Long Con and then we have a family wedding the next weekend and it's a monster family wedding. It's like six hundred people that <laughs> we're gonna be that we have to go to. We have people from Scotland staying with us and that kind of thing coming out of town. So mm-hmm. it's gonna be and then we have obviously Thanksgiving. So yeah, it's gonna be uh November's gonna be nuts. Yeah. But I, I've I've been telling them forever I'm gonna make it to one and I I I'm fortunate enough to be able to make it this year, so I'm excited. Awesome. Well, uh, as we're kind of wrapping up here, I definitely want to push people towards the Kickstarter. You have a couple days left to jump on this thing. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and drop the link here in chat for everyone. And then uh, where else can people find uh, all things Pace Setter as far as what you guys have coming up? What you have going on right now? Uh, where can people go to to see news and and stuff about what Pace Setter has going on? So the 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 easiest way to find out what I think uh, to find out what's going on with us is uh, our Facebook page. Uh, that we tend to you know post what what we're doing down the road on that, and that's uh, Pace Setter Games. If you just type in Pace Setter Games on Facebook. I think we're Pace Setter Games and Simulations, which is our technical name. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to come up that way um, and jump in that way. Or you can find us at PaceSetterGames.com. 
that's the easiest way to get us on the internet. And then uh, subscribe to our newsletter or just, you know, you can contact us via email. Uh, we're really good about sending an email, you know, email newsletter out. We're not going to bomb you every week with stuff, but, um, you know, we send it out once every two or three weeks and, you know, what's coming up with Paysetter, what conventions we're going to, upcoming products we got going, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, and, and the Kickstarter, yep. It, it, I think if you go on Kickstarter right now, I think it says it's got two days left or something like that. Mm-hmm. Kickstarter has some weird hourly thing. It actually ends on Thursday. Um, so I guess it's, it's probably like 70 hours out or something like that. I, I don't know, but, uh, um, it technically, I, I believe it ends on Thursday, the 22nd. Uh, mm-hmm. I know it says two days under Kickstarter, but that's not, I think they're, sometimes their thing is a little weird. It's a little wonky, I should say. Yeah. Uh, a- as of right now, uh, everyone has 62 hours left to back it. And, uh, those of you who are watching this after the fact, you have until Thursday, September 22nd at 12 p.m. Central. Yep. And if for some bizarre reason you miss out, we usually do, we run everything through backer kit. So we usually, we'll only do it once. We'll put it on our website or we'll put it on Facebook, a backer kit link. You know, if you were negligent or you missed it or whatever, um, you can jump in. But we'll usually only post that once, um, like kind of a last chance thing to jump into it. Uh, but the best thing to do is, is absolutely get in through a Kickstarter if you can. Uh, we appreciate it. We appreciate every one of uh, the backers. Uh, um, it's uh, we think it's a great deal. Um, I mean, for forty five bucks, you're gonna get you're gonna get dozens of adventure uh, uh, sessions in with this book. You can pick and choose out of it. Um, it doesn't. It's not. A, they're not. They're not continuous. So, like I said, there's five adventures in here. They're all completely separate. Um, so you don't have to run one file by another. They're not necessarily linked at all. And then um, and if you're a physical backer, you get the PDF for free. That's a, a, been a pacer thing forever. Uh, that's everything on our website, anywhere. So you buy a physical product from us, you get a PDF absolutely free. Uh, and that, that goes for our Kickstarter. So for 45 bucks, uh, I think it's a great deal. Uh, you can get the add-ons, obviously, with the uh, STL files, if you like. Um but uh, I think it's a it's a great deal for uh, for a lot of adventure, a lot of adventure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Bill, thank you again for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. Uh, you know, th- this has been a great conversation. I'm glad that we were actually able to, to do this without any technical problems this time. So th- that's been a blessing. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm super happy to be here. Ryan. It was great talking to you and. And hopefully, uh, I know I got educated in some stuff, and hopefully we educate some other people in some stuff. So Absolutely. if people want to reach out to me, by the way, on any of this stuff, like if you're an inspires, aspiring writer and you want to publish a module, absolutely feel free to contact us here at Paysitter. We will absolutely give you advice and help you out in any way we can. We believe in uh, we believe in the OSR, and we believe in supporting everyone. So if you're out there you have a question, we'll help you out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, guys, that's going to do it for tonight's episode of Rolling Bones. Uh, next week, to uh, to close out September, uh, I will be joined by someone who was very gracious and let me come on their platform uh, not too terribly long ago. But I'll be, of course, joined by Max Liao from Legion of Myth, and he'll be bringing Heathen Dog with him. So Max Liao and Heathen Dog from Legion of Myth will be next week on Rolling Bones. And I'll be back on uh, Legion of Myth at some point in the not-too-distant future. 
Uh, so everyone look out for that. That'll be coming next week. And next week I will have a major announcement about some changes that I'm making here on Rolling Bones. I've already told a couple people about this, but I will uh, announce this in detail on next week's show. So until then, guys, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I'm so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard. Go back, uh, Tome of Quests, and I will see you guys next time.